Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use. And wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hello again, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of the Happy MD in beautiful Seattle, Washington on a snowy day with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Today, I'm super excited to bring a coach friend of mine in, Amna Shabir, MD, whose website is called earlycareerphysician.com. And we're going to have a wide ranging discussion of what it's like to be an early career physician, what it's like to burn out as an early career physician and how you might step back in and help people that are in the same situation. So Amna, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Roman. Very happy to be here. Yeah, you bet. So one of the things I typically do when I meet doctors and entrepreneurs and coaches and things like that is say, tell me your burnout story. Tell us your burnout story. Because I always tell mine. I mean, I've I've taught 40,000 doctors live. And the first thing I start with is telling my burnout story. So I know that without that story and without that experience, you wouldn't be the person you are today and helping in the way that you are today. So that is the seminal moment where things shifted. So tell us a little bit as much as you're comfortable with about your burnout story. Absolutely. So when I look back and I really reflected hard on this and I feel like I keep finding newer levels to that story uh, between residency and my fellowship, I worked as an attending. So right after residency finished, I'm overjoyed and excited to start working as a primary care physician. Surprise, primary care is not what I thought it was going to be. And You're kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Seeing patients is different than residency? Oh my God. (laughs) Despite being a primary care track resident during residency, I really was not feeling as supported feeling as prepared. I launched my career. And then I think in the first three months, I recognized signs of burnout were already happening. I was sitting in my car, giving myself pep talks that I can go and do it. And I was your primary care physician that you want to have, you know, you want to have that primary care physician who cares. Um, You want that person who takes ownership and is not just simply referring people out. And now Looking back, I understand why people do that as well. Well, if you have just 5, 10, 15 minutes with somebody, what are you going to do? So in that time, I worked as a primary care physician right after residency for about four years where all the things happened, uh, including COVID-19 pandemic. And I had to do a deep reflection what medicine meant for me at that time. And I started recognizing that the most joy I received was actually from caring for older adults. And that's when I slowed down, did a pivot, and my solution for burnout was actually more medical training. So I went back for a fellowship in geriatrics. And after that, I think that my healing journey started when I applied for fellowship and I started slowly climbing out of that pit of burnout. I would say burnout is cyclical. You can't put a stamp. You're recovered. You're all done. You're good to go. But definitely that part between residency and fellowship was was the hardest. And I am continuing to practice part-time as a geriatrician. But 
it's it's different. It's different. And I I felt that that moment, nothing could be done. It was black and white. I just have to either walk away from medicine or worse. And, you know, we look at early career physicians and I'm passionate about helping new attendings and people who just started practice right after medical training for this very reason, because I was excited. I thought I had arrived. This is it. The arrival fallacy came full circle. I'm here. Things should be better. This should be good. And this is what I have trained so hard all my life to get to this point. And it wasn't. I didn't know how to advocate for my needs, know how to set boundaries. I didn't know how to say no. And I forgot I was also a human in other facets of my existence. I'm a mother. At a time, I had one child. I then had a second. I struggled with two bouts of postpartum depression. I had physical injuries. There was a period of time I was actually sort of bedbound. So all of this was happening in life. And when we look at that, that's early career life. You are setting yourself up. You're establishing yourself. You are really setting the tone for your career and for your life. And what happens to you in that time will dictate a lot of different things for your family, for your well-being overall. And I completely ignored physical needs, uh, physical symptoms. I just didn't have a, have the time to go see my primary care physician. And it all came full circle. And actually, the worst um, with regards to my health, I feel, happened after fellowship as well. It took a good time where I took a sabbatical and all these other things to help me heal and get to this this point and weaved into that was asking actively for help in terms of counseling, pharmacotherapy and coaching. That's where I am. Well, and what I'm struck by is that it sounds like you were an ideal resident, working really hard, doing whatever they ask you to do, no boundaries at all, got to get it done, got to survive to the finish line. And what happens when you're programmed in that way to be a little train on a set of tracks, doing whatever is expected of you, being a team player, not letting anybody think you haven't got what it takes or that you need a break is when you walk out into private practice, you're going to walk right into a brick wall because that's when the things that people want you to do and the amount of patients that you see and RVU production quotas and all that kind of stuff kick in. And if yes. you continue to try to be a good resident, see what happened, what happens that I call it is that burnout is there. It has the highest and best use as one purpose to make you so uncomfortable you have to change what you're doing to get back onto a path that has more purpose. Absolutely. And your path was, you know, and, and it's it's perfect the way you did it spontaneously. What do you like the most about what you do? What's your favorite thing? What's your favorite patient? We call it an ideal practice description. So what kind of patients do you want to be seeing? Doing what kind of things for what kind of hours and what kind of pay and what kind of team where in the world? Because you really can go anywhere you want. And you said, I want geriatrics. I want to see old people. Now, what are you doing? You're seeing old people. But because of the toxicity of the environment that you were in, and we won't go into how toxic your environment was or where the brand name institution was that it happened. But if you can't, if you can't change a toxic environment, bad leadership, people that are asking you obviously to do more than you're capable of, the only thing you can do is limit your exposure. So you found a more hospitable environment and you're working part-time. That is an absolutely valid response to an episode of burnout, especially if the people that you're seeing in your part-time job are the ones that you really love. 
<laughs> That's a great way to frame it. And and I, to your point, also, I, I just want to share this. As opposed to a lot of burnout stories that we hear where people are burning out in residency and they've had terrible experiences at that time, it's amazing that during residency, I cannot recall, like there were snippets. Of course, you're tired after working a long you know, shift and work hours, but my program was so supportive and I'll credit that to my program director. She was incredible and I had a very challenging pregnancy and had health diagnosis that I could potentially lose sight during pregnancy. So I, oh here I am, a resident, and I'm working, and I'm expecting. And she actually told me to seek active counseling and coaching at that time. And I felt like, but I don't have a mental health diagnosis. Why are you doing this to me? And she laughed, and she said, <laughs> you, need, you need the support, all the support that you can get. And because of that, I actually carry no residual trauma from a time in my life that could have been very traumatic. This is an obvious case for what happens when you actually care about your trainees and you give them the support that they need. Nothing. You know, they they don't carry anything bad from that. I only have good things to say. And and I will say residency is hard and people have horrifying experiences. And I've worked with clients who've had that issue, um, you know, as well. But that wasn't the case for me. And I think it also is like our healthcare system at large is broken. You know, we can oh, take yeah organization, any organization, the numbers are staggering. The mass exodus is there. Yeah. And you know what? You just, you just said what your inner voice said that is so fascinating to me. This is the conditioning of a resident. There's two prime directives we absorb. The conscious one that everybody speaks, the patient comes first. That by itself is terribly unhealthy unless you have an off switch on it. The second one is never show weakness. So here's your residency program director trying to get you coaching and, and time off and counseling. And what was your response? Why are you doing this to me? People are going to think I don't have what it takes. That's that classic never show weakness programming. So really cool. Okay, great. So let me ask you this. I am a simple country doctor, full service family practice. We did everything. Okay. And when I look at academics, I got to ask you this question. Why in the hell would anybody want to come and become an academic in the first place? That seems insane to me. That you had me there for a second. So, <laughs> <laughs> there's there's so much. I it's it's this uh, joy of connection that you are continuing, that art of teaching and connecting with younger um, learners, and you're giving back. You're giving back the art of medicine and your training. And I loved working with learners and you're sharing your art and you're, you know, you get the joy of watching another human thrive. And so it can be both ways, right? You can share the art and joy of learning with them, or you could take all the trauma that was inflicted on you <laughs> and then change the Socratic method of learning and turn it into something completely different. And that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> well, here's what I'll say. I have worked with a number of senior academic physicians who burned out. And it's clear to me, the reason is, if you want to be a successful academic, you're actually taking on six FTEs at the same time. Clinician, teacher, academic department head, researcher, fundraiser, and you're expected to speak internationally on behalf of the institution. Now, that's not tenable. The very first academic I ever worked with was a 45-year-old interim department chair. She'd been sucked into being a department chair when somebody left. Two young children at home. 
taking on all six of those jobs. She had recently come back from a European speaking tour on behalf of the institution, and her husband expected her to be home with hot dinner on the table at five o'clock every night. She had an hour-long commute. Wow. And I told her, you know, this husband thing might not work for you. (laughs) She never came back because he was was one of the traditional wife, and she was trying to be a full six FTE academic. Crazy, huh? None of that is like, it's so normalized. All of this is normalized. So just the fact that women in general, they have so much invisible workload and they're doing all the tasks. And then you look at the study that was actually published pre-pandemic in JAMA in 2019, where it was stated that 40% of female physicians within the first six years either go part-time or completely leave medicine altogether. Yep. Yep. I mean, it's all there and we're just expected everything, even if it's female or male, like all these academic roles, there's no compensated time. When I was a fellow after becoming an attending, <laughs> it was, our, our attendings had no, there were no boundaries. The fellows can message you anytime. So while the fellows are like, as trainees, they're, you know, they're, it's good for your learning. But I kept thinking from the other side, like I have these, like, when are you taking time out for your family? There's, there's no wall there's there's nothing you have to always be available as an academic physician you're always available well in the other day i was training in, in an organization where the residency program was sitting in on a training for the medical staff and i did my usual presentation on burnout and overwhelm based on the conditioning of our medical education through overwhelm and residency and the residency program director came up to me afterwards and says well that's great you just traumatized my residents and I said, what do you mean? She said, you, you said, when do you ever stop? You're trained never to stop and always keep on. She says, my residents don't have to do anything they don't want to do. It's like, I'm sorry. Yeah, me and my faculty, all they got to do is call or text us and we'll come in and take over any time that they don't feel that they can keep going. And I talked to a number of doctors afterward about that interaction. And it's like, is that a good thing? You're going to shelter them like a mother hen and then release them having never been pushed to stretch into a working environment where they're going to just be knocked right off their feet. These people are not going to be able to incorporate themselves into a working position. And yet it it, it is something that I can expect somebody who's a residency faculty member to feel, you know, I want to protect them so they don't get trained like I did, right? But still, there is a certain amount of resilience and work hardening and stick-to-itiveness and finishing the job that has to be instilled at the same time. It's it's like where you draw the line and, and mm-hmm. stop resentment from encroaching both ways. And I feel like we're not taking an aerial bird's eye view. We're working on initiatives, top-down initiatives. And of course, the application of those initiatives from GME are very variable across organizations and, and programs where despite GME investigations, they're still bullying and all the things happening oh, yeah. in a residency program. And then you have these attendings that actually care, the faculty members that care, and they want to protect their residents. But this is exactly why I am so passionate about the early career physician right after medical training in that first five years. Well, that's gone. The protection that you had for work hours, gone. Uh, whatever invisible, whatever minimal that was, even if it was on pen to paper, like that's all gone. It's you and and you have to figure it out. 
you know clinical medicine. And in fact, that is one of the best times when you're, you've taken your boards. And I, you know, I felt the most, uh, I feel most intelligent the, the week following my boards. So, you know, it's not the clinical medicine, you know how to doctor, and yet you're suffering the worst with imposter syndrome, confidence struggles, and so much more. It is that time. We need to address that time to stop the hemorrhage that's happening with physicians leaving. Well, and what I'll say is, and I want to point out the elephant in the room, we haven't mentioned it yet. If you compare what's happening right now, at least for a little while longer until all the boomer docs are gone, that won't take that long. By the way, 45% of American physicians are over the age of 55. So if you compare the hours of clinical contact of a resident that has work hour restrictions in their residency versus a person who was pre-work hour restrictions, the graduating residents today have one third less experience than their colleagues they're now working with who may be boomer docs. So from a boomer docs perspective, they're a different doctor. And so I would challenge you that you don't have the clinical experience to embed yourself in a group of boomer doctors without feeling the heat. And the boomer doctors don't necessarily trust you knowing that that's true and watching your practice as you first come on board. So I've talked to CMOs all over the country that say, look, we have to do extended mentoring and extended supervision of the new doctors to make sure they can incorporate themselves into our native work teams. Well, to that, I will also say, I think we have to build a bridge because we can't- Yes, absolutely. We, we can't just keep looking at, so even, even with the current work hours and all the things, you know, people coming out, they have an insane amount of clinical hours if you compare them to other practice, uh, you know, providers that are out there. And, and, and this is just to say that the scope of practice for everyone is different, right? So by the time that you're done um, with medical training, on average, you are about, I'm blanking on the exact number, but the AMA had it on their website. It's about 20,000 hours or clinical hours. So that's, that's, that's a lot of hours. So the thing there is, when I say building the bridges, and that's where, if you don't build the bridge, we're, um, what I call, we're continuing the suffering Olympics. Like I worked this much and I had no work hour restrictions. And now I'm kind of looking down at you for wanting to advocate for your mental health. You know, right. all these other things. Right. Um, so so when somebody says like, I, I, ju I just need a day to breathe. And then the older physician might have this response. And, and I know I don't want to like label everyone like that, but they might have this response. Either you're judging your younger colleague for asking for time. They might be burning out as well. Such as I point out in my case, I was burning out in the first three months. I just didn't want, I didn't want to say it because I felt like a failure. I didn't want to, I didn't want to acknowledge it openly, but it's just that, we have to build that bridge. We have to stop judgment. And this is what it is, the suffering Olympics. Like, let me show my medals. This is what I have. And so we know that it's not sustainable when data shows that every day you need about 42% of your time needs to be rest. And like, that's about 10 hours a day. And when are we getting that? So, and and then we all crash and burn and, and question why, why are we burning out, you know? Most workplaces in healthcare are not particularly supportive cultural environments. So, and they aren't adequately staffed. So mm -hmm. they're a stressful workplace, 63% burnout, the last national study in the United States. So what ends up happening is if you say, if you're one of my partners and you say, I just need a day off to decompress, I'm going to say, well, shit, who's working that day? Me again? These young doctors don't know how to work hard and they don't care. Right. Yeah. 
So yeah. I, I get the idea that you would potentially want to help early career physicians realize it should be the employer's job and they should be the one doing these transitional programs, onboarding and mentoring them as they adapt to working, not you. But let me ask you, what are some of the issues that come up in your coaching practice? Remember, what's your website again? Earlycareerphysician.com. Okay. So let's let's talk about some of the things that you provide to your clients when you're coaching an early career physician. And in your case, you're talking about the first five years of practice. Is that right? Okay, cool. First five years. Yeah. So um, when I'm doing all my work thus far has been one-on-one and um, individuals can use their CME funds for coaching with me mm-hmm. as well. There has been a lot mm-hmm. of work surrounding imposter syndrome. And I know this word gets tossed around a lot, but it really has such deep permeating effects into all facets of your existence. Because if you feel like an imposter, you really have confidence struggles and you cannot advocate for your needs at the workplace. So it's imposter syndrome, it's confidence struggles, it's perfectionism that I'm the perfect resident fellow and now I'm an attending. I can't keep up with that narrative. You also have a lot of boundary setting issues. So I think those would be my top sum. And then this recognition of like, I'm here, but this feels bad and I hate my job. And, and if I leave my job, is, am, I, am I a failure? What is my purpose and fulfillment? And those are questions uh, post-pandemic people are asking themselves a lot. And then my clients, you know, a lot of them, they did their training during COVID. And when COVID happened, bedside rounds changed. Things changed. The, the trauma that they saw in the ICUs with their patients, they changed. And now these are your early career physicians and they have, they feel a lack of support, a lack of mentoring that was happening in the pandemic because we're, we were all in survival mode. Yeah, sure. absolutely. And when you're in survival mode, you'll do anything to survive, including violate your boundaries and not mm-hmm. take good care of yourself just to try and get through. And, and, and there was, I mean, it's not, even if they wanted to, they couldn't because- right. I mean, if there are five residents, three got COVID, the other two are going to have to pick up right. this. So there's, there are all these issues that, I mean, a lot of us are forgetting what happened. And then some, myself included, I was in the first four years out of residency at that time when the pandemic happened. It was incredibly scary as it was for many other people. And I was a primary care physician. You're, you're there. You're, you're there. You're working everywhere. My, my way to give back, back at that time was to pick up the shift for my any any pregnant physician uh, or provider in my practice I would actually take their and like you know go go work in the respiratory care units that we had open at that time and any older physician because we didn't have vaccine and and I, I have actually no qualms that I did that I wanted to support my physicians there's part of community that's very important but when I'm working with my clients these are all things that are resurfacing and we have to address them. So coaching is one way. And then I also offer a lot of free resources. I have monthly Q&A series, physician well-being Q&A series, because physician wellness, early career physician wellness has to be tackled from different ways and creative ways. A lot of times the things you want answered are not going to be answered by a physician. You actually need an attorney to answer them. So I had in my uh, two previous uh, sessions, we had attorneys come and talk about different facets of uh, well-being and because it's Q&A style, you're, you can come in and you can ask your questions for free, be there, be present with these experts. After that, I had one for real estate investing and 
Coming up, we're talking about finance pearls and more uh, for the rest of 2024. So the well-being Q&A series is one resource. And then I actually have um, resource also, resources also available on the website for residents and fellows that are graduating and are going to become attendings pretty soon. So, um, you know, that phase is very important as well. And, and I'm very proud of the fact that I am helping and reaching out to so many people. And, and I am proud because people have shared their stories with me. When I share my story, I hear the reverberations. Sometimes when burnout is happening, not sometimes, most of the times, despite the fact we say many doctors are burnt out, you know, big deal, big whoop. There's another burnt out doctor talking about their burnout story. But when it's happening to you, you feel so alone. You feel so alone and you don't know how to phrase it. We call it burnout. But and when I look back at it, I, I don't think it was just burnout. I mean, my heart broke. Mm -hmm. I, oh, yeah. I had, there oh, was yeah. grief. There was grief because I left. I thought that this was it. And this is what I was working towards. And when it was not, I grieved the loss of my identity and my expectation. Yep. And for somebody who, I, I mean, my, my patients were amazing. And that really broke me that I could not give them the, the best care that they deserve. And I could not give myself the best care that I deserve as a human and as a physician. Yeah, that sense of breaking means you're a really good doctor because it is a spiritual soul level connection with the choice you made years ago to be a helper and a healer and make a difference. Remember the three symptoms of burnout, exhaustion, that's physical, everybody understands that, compassion fatigue when you can't be emotionally available to somebody else, but the last one is what's the use? I'm not really making a difference here. That's the heartbreaker. So the people that I tend to resonate with and tend to find me as a coach are the folks that say, you know, I still love seeing patients. I still love being a doctor. I just hate this job. So that's typically what we work on. By the way, real quick, when we say imposter syndrome, it almost sounds like an abstract concept. Let's talk about what the little voice in your head is saying when what you're experiencing is imposter syndrome. One of the phrases you'll hear over and over again is, what if they find out? Or don't let them find out. That's what. That's the voice of imposter syndrome, even though the word imposter is not in there. You don't know what you're doing. What if they find out? Don't let them find out like that. And then the other thing that's, that's important, every time that I work with a coaching client, the first thing we talk about is, well, you've got some water under your bridge. What do you really love about what you do? What kind of patients do you love? Doing what kind of stuff that you enjoy? That's your ideal practice description. And for a young career physician, you might not know that. Your memories of what you really enjoyed might have been just in medical school and residency. But without that true north of your ideal job description, it's really hard to steer in that direction. And by the way, without that true north of your ideal job description, a lot of early career burnout is because of a suboptimal job search. Let me just, I'm going to say one thing and then we'll wrap it up. The mistake doctors make in their first job search is this. You search for your first job the same way you tried to get into med school, residency, and fellowship. And what did you do at those times? You said, pick me, pick me. And you tap danced and you did whatever you could to get them to pick you. You know what? That's because there's a selective admission policy. And that's actually an appropriate thing to do. Pick me, pick me, do whatever they want to, to get picked. But once you graduate, 
You don't care if they pick you. It's not about them picking you. It's about whether they can show you an opportunity and you can ask enough questions. The folks that I coach ask over 120 questions in their, in their interviews. You can answer enough, get enough answers to enough questions and believe the person who's giving you the answers that you can say, you know what? Here's my ideal job description. This place is at least a 70% match. It's about whether you are going to take that opportunity because that opportunity is worthy of your practice. It's not about them. And everybody we've worked with so far, and it's been years now, every single one's left with a job offer, but that's not important. You're going to sit down when you get back home and say, have I got a 70% match? And only then would you potentially accept them. And I'm sure you teach some variety of that with your people for their job search. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because you you put it perfectly, that mentality, because by the time you're done with your medical training, you are a hard worker. You're a body of hard work, compassion, empathy, and drive. There's ambition. And yes, you might also be experiencing some various degree of burnout from training, but you've all this and you just, you're powering at a thousand miles an hour. You know, you're just going and you're looking for the surge the same way. You're not really shifting your mindset to the fact that you are now in the driver's seat of your life and you need to have more agency. You need to exhibit more agency. You have more agency than you think already. And you need to exude that so that there is a match. And you do the best that you can and you land that first job. But don't be surprised if it's if it's not the right fit. That does not mean that you're broken. It's an opportunity, like you presented it, just like you've said, Dr. D. It's, it, it's an opportunity. You take it, you see how it fits, and then if it doesn't work, you can move on. There's literally, we just tie our being into it because we did medical school, residency, depending, you might do fellowship. So this was all weaved into you. So when you embrace your first job, you might have that same energy, like, I will grow old here and be, this is my forever job. A lot of that energy is there. And even if you are like looking at it some short term, but at that time, you're thinking that this will kind of pan out the same way. But if it doesn't, I just want to say it's okay. And you, that is not black and white. Right. I, I have an agricultural metaphor that I use. Imagine that your practice and your urge to make a difference is like seeds and you're a gardener. You want to plant these seeds someplace where they'll grow big and tall. And imagine that the seeds are corn seeds and it's a Midwest corn stalk. It's eight foot tall. It's got four ears of corn on it. If it gets planted in the right soil, but you take that first job and you're realizing something not right here. And I'm asking you, how's your corn growing? How, how, how is everything growing here? And you realize what happened is you took a job where there wasn't fertile soil for what you want to create in your practice. It was actually a parking lot. And one of your seeds found a crack in the parking lot and it's four inches tall. And that's the best it's ever going to be, but you're looking to grow an eight-footer. That's when you have to breathe, take your lumps, learn your lessons, refine your ideal job description, and be mobile and go out and try again. And fortunately, you might realize that ahead of time and be kind with yourself because there's always shame and guilt involved when you have this realization. But move on simple and easy without having to go through the full-blown crisis of burnout and crash. Because again, I just want to say, Burnout is not a mental illness, but the complications of burnout can be fatal. So we want to avoid the whole crisis, you know, run yourself into the ground piece. If your workplace right now is not at least a 70% match with your ideal job description, how do you tell? 
You know what this job feels like. It's a two-circle Venn diagram. You can imagine what your ideal job would feel like. How much overlap does it feel like there is between the two? 20, 40, 60, 80%. If it's not at least 70, see what you can do to change it here. See if you can make the soil more fertile. Otherwise, get out of there and use that same ideal job description to find your next one. I'm going to put a link to our ideal physician job search formula training in the notes for today. And then Amna, tell us again your website. It's earlycareerphysician.com. Okay, cool. And Amna wants all the CMOs around the country that have early career physicians that they'd like to have have softer landings know she can help. I would love to. <laughs> right on, right on. Well, Amna Shabir, MD, thank you so very much. Earlycareerphysician.com. That's it for today's episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Until I see you in the next podcast, keep breathing. Have a great rest of your day. 